We are now known by the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and united as the Church, the body of Christ. Made new in the fullness of his love, because in Christ all things are made new. Everybody, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Really glad that you're here. Uh, welcome those of you who are worshiping at Aurora or Highland Square Restoration or tuning in. All right, this is the seventh week of our 10-week series on Ephesians. And one of the challenging things about going through a book like this uh, week after week is that in the average church, uh, one-third of the people who were here last weekend will not be here this weekend. And one-third of you that are here this weekend weren't here last weekend. And the challenging thing is when I say that we are going to cover the second half of chapter 4, I don't know how many people heard the first half of chapter 4 or the parts of chapters 1, 2, and 3. So what I've started to do, and I'll continue to do, is give you kind of the structure of the book so you have a context. And then I want each sermon to kind of stand alone in case this is the only message on Ephesians you get to hear. All right. So this is the way uh, Paul sets up this book of Ephesians. He starts out by talking about the beauty of grace. Uh, grace is not something you get from God because you deserve it. You don't get grace because you come to church or because you pray or because you read your Bible. You get grace simply because God decided to give you grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. All right, so it starts out with the beauty of grace. And then the second part of the book, Paul goes into the mystery of community. That when grace hits a group of people, those people, even though they are wildly different from each other, they love each other because of the common grace that they share. And they, that creates a community that the world has never seen before. That's what is supposed to happen. And those people come together like a jigsaw puzzle where every piece connects with every other piece so that there are strengths that fill the gaps of weaknesses in each other. And together we form this mosaic, this picture of the very glory of God himself. That's the church. And then finally, Paul will move to the last third of the book, which is the power of transformation. How the beauty of grace and this mystery of community uh, then results in a complete transformation of each one of us. And that's where we are right now. So the next month, we will be answering the question, how do we really change? How do we really change? It's a good question because most of us have trouble making the smallest of changes in our lives, going off sugar or turning off the TV. I just read where 50% uh, of Americans make New Year's resolutions. 50%. 90% of the people who make New Year's resolutions don't keep it through January. Right? We change is hard. So how do we change? And what Paul talks about in Ephesians it's not some small change like going off sugar or turn off the TV. It's a huge change. What he says is God wants to make you 
of all people, like Jesus. He wants to make me like Jesus. And that just sounds crazy. How many changes will you have to make to become like Jesus? I don't know, but I know this. That if you, if you allow God to take you on that journey to become like Jesus, it will be the most exquisite adventure you have been, ever been on. It will be the most wonderful thing to happen to the people that you love. It will be the most amazing thing that happens to everybody you come in contact with. I want you to imagine what it would be like to have a thousand Jesuses kind of airdropped into our community? What would it be like to have 10 Jesuses in your neighborhood or in your school or at your workplace? What would it be like to, be, to be, have a neighbor who is becoming more like Jesus every single day? You would wake up in the morning and think, I can't wait to see what's happening with that neighbor. That's what Jesus wants to do with us. All right, now it's time to look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And I'm going to uh, read, start reading at verse 17 and read uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 32. That's what it says. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word, and it's true. All right, there's a lot there, but uh, I'm just going to kind of focus in on three ways that Paul tells us uh, we need to change. First is a change in mind, which is the way you think, and then a change in heart, which is a change in what you want, and finally, a change in everything in every way, which is a change in the way you live. A change in mind in the way you think, a change in heart and what you want, and a change in everything in every way, which is the way you live. All right, first, a change in mind. 
Start in verse 17. It says, uh, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Uh, Paul is reminding these Ephesians that they no longer have to think the way they used to think. He says, in the futility of their minds, that's the language of thought. And he's saying, when he says futility, the word futility means uh, something that's ineffective, that doesn't work. And what he's saying is, the way you used to think wasn't working. It was ineffective. All right. This is, what it, uh, this is my all-time favorite prop, uh, the wheel. And I think it's my all-time favorite prop because it has helped me understand me uh, better. And I hope it does that to you. If you are new to the wheel prop, uh, this is the way I think every human heart works. Uh, these spokes represent all the different aspects of your life, the things that are important to you. They can be your relationships, like with your, with your parents, with your children, with your spouse, with your girlfriend, with your friends. It can be uh, your work and being successful. It can be your appearance and your weight. It can be hobbies. It can be sports teams. It's all kinds of things. But every human heart has something in the middle, some what I call the hub, that really is the organized. It's more important than anything else. And whatever is the most important thing in your life is your hub. And everybody has it. You have to. This is the way the human heart has to work. Now, what that means is that your hub becomes kind of your identity. Because if, if you lose one of the spokes, you can be sad. But if you lose the hub, you lose you. Okay? The human heart is this magnificent kind of thing, that the way it works. It, it's like this, this magnificent engine that is created to run on a particular fuel, the hub. And if, it, if it's the right fuel, then it runs well. If it's the wrong fuel, it will run poorly. It will be ineffective. Right? I, I once put uh, diesel fuel in a gas car um, that I was renting. And I didn't realize what I'd done until I was trying to uh, drive up a hill and it started to sputter, 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 and stopped. Because even though the engine was a great, a magnificent engine, at least until I put diesel fuel into it, it wasn't made to run on diesel fuel. So if you try to run your heart, your life, on something that it's not created to run on, it will not work. It will not work. All right. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, what I had in my heart was um, basketball. Oh, let me read you a verse here. Verse 19. Uh, verse 19, he says, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When he uses that word greedy, He's saying, uh, when you're greedy, you want more. It's like what you have isn't satisfying, and you have to have more. It's a craving for more. It's actually the language of addiction there. All right, 
So back to me in high school. Uh, I had basketball in the center, which is not uncommon, I think, for a high school kid to put athletics in the center. If you had asked me what was the most important thing in my life, I would have said God because I knew that was the right answer. But if you watched my life, what organized my life, it was basketball. Uh, my senior year in high school, we ended up, uh, my team ended up uh, going on getting hot right at the right time. And we ended up winning the state championship uh, for the state of Florida at the highest level of high school. Now, when you're a high school kid and basketball is the most important thing to you and you, your team wins the state championship, it's like there are no more worlds to conquer. That's the best. There's nothing else to do. But I remember uh, sitting in the locker room of the Lakeland Civic Center in Lakeland, Florida, 20 minutes after our team won the state championship, and I put my head in my hands because I realized that it didn't work. That I, I thought that I'd put the right thing, and I'd, I'd, I'd worked all my high school career for that one single goal, and when I achieved that goal, I realized I was still thirsty. That's what Paul means when he says, uh, in the futility of your mind, you thought something would work. Now, all of us know that uh, the human heart, the human life, isn't made to run on basketball. That's just silly. It might be harder to realize that the human heart isn't meant to run on marriage or on our children or on success or on our health or on a number of other things. But that's what Paul says. And then he says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And what he's saying is that there's something that happens in our heads. Now, Christianity is more than a belief, but it's not less than believing. That in order to be, be a Christian, there are certain things you have to believe, you have to think and understand are true. And the, the most concise place to find what you must believe in order to be a Christian, I think, might be in 1 Corinthians 15, in just two verses, verses 3 and 4. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What a Christian believes is that something happened in history. That Jesus Christ died on a cross and he died to pay for your sins. And then he was buried and then he was resurrected from the dead bodily to show that he had the power to actually change you. Change everything about you. Change your relationship to God. Change your, your relationship with yourself. Change your relationship with other people. What Paul says is, one of the things that happened, the first thing that happens to you in order to really change, if you're ever going to be like Jesus is you have to change what you think belongs here. Because whatever you thought belonged here doesn't really belong. And when you start to believe who Jesus is and what he did, that he died on a cross for you, that he was buried and that he resurrected, then you can put him in the center of your life and begin to function on the fuel of Jesus. That's the first thing he says. Then he goes on to talk about a change in heart in what we want. And this is what he says, uh, <clears throat> beginning at verse 
22. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now I'm going to be jumping back and forth, kind of between mind and heart, because they're always connected. Your mind tells your heart what it should believe, and your heart tells your mind what it really wants. Right, so those two things are always connected. And what Paul says here is he wants to, he says, take off the old self and put on the new self. That's the language of identity. So he's saying something happens in your mind when you begin to believe that Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then something's going to happen in your heart that's going to change your identity. And this is what he means. Let's go back to the, to the high school jail. Um, here's a question. Why did I put basketball here? What did I want basketball to do for me? Why would a game become the central thing in anyone's life? This is why. In my high school, uh, if you were an athlete, that meant you were somebody. If you were a starter on a team, that meant you were somebody special. All right, let me stop right there. Now, if I was a starter of a team, which meant I was somebody special, and then I got benched, what would that mean? That, mean I went, that would mean that something happened to who I felt I was. Something happened from me feeling special to me feeling less special. And when that happens, you almost feel like you have lost kind of a solidness. You've, you've become a little more um, wispy. And so... That's something no one ever wants to have happen, particularly if basketball is right here. So in my high school. So if you were an athlete, you were somebody. If you were a starter, you were somebody special. If you were a captain, that meant you were the top of the heap. If you ever won the state championship, you were king of the world. Right? And so for me, that was the, I was thinking that would be the absolute pinnacle. That's what I need in order to feel like I'm okay. That's what I need in order to feel good about myself. All right. Now, here's a question. If, um, if I was struggling in a class on my senior year, and I knew I needed to pass that class in order to stay eligible for basketball, and there was uh, an opportunity that presented itself where I could cheat on that test and make sure that I stayed eligible would I have cheated? Of course I would. Right? Absolutely. Why? Because my heart would tell me I had to. My heart says, listen, if you don't play basketball, you're nobody. This is what I want to get through, is this. Uh, every religion teaches that cheating is wrong. Right? Every religion teaches that lying is wrong. Every religion will teach that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, all that. We, they teach the basic same ethics, but the motivation for the ethics is completely different with Christianity. And this is what I mean. How would you try to tell me not to cheat when I'm in high school? You'd say, listen, Joe, if you cheat, if you get caught, you get thrown off the team. That's even worse. Right? You, could, you could try to appeal to fear. You could say, Joe, 
You're, you're a better person than that. Cheaters aren't good people. <laughs> Don't cheat. But nothing would help me unless you change this. Because what this says to me is what I really have to do. Whatever the hub of your heart says is what you will end up doing. And the thing that Christianity changes is that every other thing that you put in your heart will say, you have to do this in order to be good, in order to be okay with you. If you say, oh, you know what? The most important thing to me is being a good mother, being a good mother. You have somebody tell you, you know what? You're not a good mother. Or you see evidence in your kids that you think you're, that makes you not a good mother, then it will, it will begin to just kill you because you are not performing the way, you want it, the way you need to in order to be okay. Jesus comes along and he says, listen, your identity is no longer in what you do. Your identity is, is in what I have done for you, which means the thing that makes you okay is not what you do, but what I've done. And I want you to know that God loves you right now, that you are approved right now. That you cannot do something that makes God love you any more. You cannot do something that makes God love you any less. And all of a sudden, then I don't have to perform in order to be okay. Unless you experience that, your heart is not fully changed. And when your heart is not fully changed, then you can never, your, your life will not change. You want to know why it's hard for you when we get to this list that Paul gets on changing everything in every way. If you want to know why there's an area of your life where you go, you know what, it's so hard for me that I just keep on failing in that area, the thing you have to look at is your heart. Because what happens when Jesus comes in and he says, Joe, I am the center. If he had come to me in my, if I had understood that when I was a high school kid, that Jesus is what makes me okay with me, not basketball, then basketball becomes a spoke. It doesn't become the heart. And then I don't have to cheat. But as long as there's something in my heart that says, if you don't do this, then you are nobody. Then I will do whatever, whatever, to stay somebody. Jesus says to me, to you, you're mine. I already have loved you. I have already done everything for you. You cannot do anything that makes, him, makes God love you any more. You cannot do anything that makes God love you any less. So there's a change in mind. Then there's a change in heart. And finally, there's a change in everything in every way, a change in life. Look at verse 25. That's what Paul says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He, it bleeds over into chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. 
But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. (laughs) I don't know why that cracks me up. Um, I think Paul goes on a riff here. It's like he just, it's like a stream of consciousness. He just goes from one thing to another thing to another thing. He talks about all different aspects of your life. Right? It's almost overwhelming. He talks about your conversations. He talks about your relationships. He talks about reconciliation. He talks about anger. He talks about your work. He talks about your, your charitable giving. He talks about how to treat the poor. He talks about sexual, your, your sexuality. He talks about how you joke. He talks about it's like if, if your life is a house, Paul like walks in and opens the door to every room, and he opens the door and he goes, Jesus is coming in here. Opens another door. Jesus is coming in here. Opens another door. Jesus is coming in here. And then if you have uh, chest of drawers or anything, he says, Jesus is going to look through that drawer. Jesus is going to go through that drawer. Jesus is going to go through that drawer. Jesus is coming into every single aspect of your life. And there are a couple things I want to point out. The first is this. Don't get this out of order. A lot of people do. I'll have people say to me, uh, wait, let me, let me ask. If, if I become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? If I become a Christian, does that mean I have to um, spend my money differently? And I, I want to I say, of course it does. But it's out of order. It won't make any sense. All the changes. To, to God's intent is to make you like Jesus. That means he's got to do all kinds of stuff in your life. It makes no sense to say, Oh, if I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, then I won't become a Christian. Becoming a Christian has to change your mind first, then your heart, and then it will begin to change parts of your life. Don't get it out of order. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. If you're a Christian, that means you have to examine every single aspect of your life. You can't stand in front of one room and say, Oh, Jesus, you can go into my sexuality room because I have that pretty much under control. You're, you're welcome there. But you can't come in my money room because that's mine and things are a little bit of a wreck there and I don't want you in here. You can't do that. Jesus comes into every aspect of your life. I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, uh, he was talking to a, a college-age woman who had just become a Christian. And uh, he was talking to her and he just said, hey, what are your plans? As, just as they were leaving, he said, what are your plans for this weekend? And she said, oh, Friday night I'm going to go to a party. And he said, really, what, what are you going to do at the party? And she said, well, I'm hoping this cute guy is going to be there and, and maybe we'll hook up. And hook up is a euphemism for have sex. And my friend said to her, hey, do you want to know what Jesus says about that? And she goes, yeah, I would. And so he told her. And he thought, and then he said, what do you think about that? And he thought she was going to say, I didn't. I, I guess I, I pulled the trigger too quick on the Jesus thing. I didn't realize he was going to mess with my life. You know what she said? He said, what do you think about what I just told you? She said, I think I need to make different plans. And he said, why would you say that? And she said, because I'm all in with Jesus. I'm trusting him with my soul. I can trust him with my sexuality. I just need to know what he wants. And that's all she needed. She was just saying, oh, I didn't know he went into this room absolutely let him come in. This is the thing. 
Jesus wants to change you into being like Jesus. What will that look like? He, needs to, he wants to come into every aspect of who you are. And if you let him into every room, into every drawer, it will be the most exquisite adventure you have ever been on. It will be the most wonderful thing that happens to the people that you love. And it will be the most amazing thing to happen to everybody you come in contact with. I started this by saying, what would it be like in our community if a thousand Jesuses were airdropped into our community? What would it be like at your work if there were 10 Jesuses where you work, if there were 10 Jesuses in your neighborhood, if there were 10 Jesuses in your school? What would it be like to live next to somebody who every single day would be opening up a different door to Jesus and becoming more like Jesus every day? You'd wake up and you couldn't wait to find out how they had changed from yesterday to today. That's what Jesus wants to do with you. It's a change in mind and how you think, what you think you really need in the middle of your life, in the middle of your heart. It's a change in your heart and what you really want. And then a change in everything in every way in the way you live. Transformed. 2018. Ephesians together. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your love for us. Uh, I'm grateful that you actually want to make me like Jesus. That is crazy. Uh, and I can, <laughs> I feel like I could warn you that that's going to be a job to change each one of us to be like your son. But that's what you want to do, and that's what you promise you will do. If we will change the way we think, if we will change our hearts, and then open every single room and every single drawer so that you can change us in everything in every way. Thanks. Make us like your son, we pray. Amen.